0: This is the Oasis Church Podcast. We're located in Athens, Ohio, and we use this podcast feed to primarily post the messages from our Sunday morning church gatherings. If you enjoy this message or if you'd like to know more about Oasis Church, please reach out to us at oasisathens at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We look forward to hearing from you, and we hope that you enjoy this message from Oasis Church in Athens, Ohio. 1 John chapter 4 is where we're going to be today. Uh, I should say again today, because that's actually where we were uh, the majority of our time last Sunday. And what I would like to do is I would like to begin today's message by just reading this chapter in its, in its entirety. Um, you know, we're told in, in Romans, Paul tells us that faith, comes by hearing, and specifically hearing the Word of God. And so there really is no better way to instill faith in you, um, in, in, in another person, than simply reading the Scripture. If I'm really honest with myself, that is, that is more powerful than me telling you about the Scripture. I mean, sermons cannot induce faith. Only the words of the Scripture have the power to induce faith, to, to create faith in you. Um, sermons can illuminate on Scripture. It, they can they can uh, elaborate on Scripture. They can explain Scripture, but they just can't create faith in you. And so, let's read the Scripture together. And we're going to read First John four, the entire chapter. You ready to follow along? All right. Here's what John the Apostle, the eyewitness of Jesus, says: Beloved. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. It's that simple. John didn't say it's that simple. I interjected that. Let's continue. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, the one that does not confess Jesus, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. Uh, Little children, John calls us little children. He's speaking to us as though he's like like a grandpa, I think. You are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And now listen to this. This is where we're going to spend the majority of our time today, in this next chunk here, the rest of the chapter. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we are abiding, that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. God is love. I want to emphasize that. God is love. And whoever abides in God in love abides in God and God in him. By this, verse 17, by this is love is perf- by this is love perfected we, uh, with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as as he is so, so as as he is so also we are in the world there is no fear in love but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears fears has not been perfected in love we love because he first loved us if anyone says i love god and he hates his brother he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. I think it's about time to retire this. Someone's at the door. (laughs) FedEx is at the door. FedEx knows no knows no day of rest, no day of Sabbath. All right. Okay. I was getting ready to say it's about time to retire this particular Bible because I can't read these small words. My 48-year-old eyes. I turned 48 today and I can't see. All right. I just want to say that 1 John 4, um, the version of the scripture that I could actually see and read this past week and the last couple of weeks, has really been a refresher to to me, to my soul. Uh, And there's great encouragement, I think, that comes in the words, like the words that we talked about last week, where he says, brothers, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits, try the spirits uh, to make sure, put them on trial to make sure that they actually are from God because many false prophets have gone into the world. That's refreshing to hear. To know, and the reason why I say it 's refreshing is this because we're that tells us that there is a truth that is not defined by us, and that truth has a name, just like we sang about his name is Jesus, and when you think about where John starts in this book, he 's about to put in a little a little caveat, a sort of an ending to what he 's discussed. From, John chapter, from 1 John chapter 2 all the way through chapter 4, which is really the meat of what 1 John is about. So we're kind of concluding, we're coming to an end of the, the, the majority of what the, the main thrust of this book has been about. And I told you at the very beginning of this series, when we started about seven weeks ago, that we were going to title it, Love One Another. And this is what this is the culmination of it right here. What we're talking about today. So when you think about where First John chapter four begins, it he begins with a pursuit of truth. Right, that they're you know test the spirits because not every single one of them are true. Truth is extremely important. We talked about last week because. People can sincerely believe in things, but they can be sincerely wrong. And it is possible for people to be wrong, yet be really sincere and really adamant about what it is they believe. And it doesn't mean that we hate people who are wrong. It's just to acknowledge that the truth really is significant. Truth, the truth. It is significant to understand that there is such a thing called the truth, we've gotten so used to hearing people say a truth or your truth and my truth as though there are many truths that are involved in a particular circumstance or situation. There aren't truths and a truth that belongs to you and a truth that belongs to another person. There is the truth, but then there is your experience and the way you describe your experience and the way you describe the way you feel in that experience. You may be telling the truth about your experience, but experience and truth cannot be used synonymously. We each have different experiences, and your personal experiences, we really went into more depth about, depth about this last week, your personal experiences, my personal experiences, don't change the nature of truth. Your opinions can be different, but truth doesn't change just because you have a different experience. Truth is outside of you. Truth is outside of me. The truth is, is out there. And according to whether or not we align our experience with the truth, sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. I was discussing this with a friend last week, and he was he was playing devil's advocate. And so he said, hey, maybe maybe when people speak of it like this, they're they're actually thinking in this way. So he's trying to open my mind to this, right? And um, he's saying, maybe truth is dependent upon the nature and characteristic of the topic that's being discussed. For example, if you're fighting or arguing over a, a solution to a math problem, then there obviously isn't multiple truths to that. There is there is, there is a, a true answer. But if you're talking about a particular incident involving two individuals, then wouldn't both of their perspectives of that incident differ the truth, thus creating this very idea of his truth and his truth, or his truth and your truth, or whatever like if there's like let's say there's an automobile accident and one person's in this car and one person's in this car and there's an accident and then someone's watching from over here and someone's watching from over here and the police get reports of everyone the police might say hey you give me your i mean you know if we're speaking like oprah give me your truth right you give me your truth you give me your truth and and they all tell their story and they may not all be exactly the same and that's what this guy was saying maybe that's what they mean but, but, but here's the problem. And this was my response. You can't use perspectives and truth synonymously because although you might get four different perspectives on the event that took place, there is still one exact truth of what actually took place. And that truth may not have been seen by this person over here. It may not have been experienced fully by this person over here, but they may have been very convicted in their, in their telling of the story, and what they were telling is their perspective. Your perspective is literally an opinion. It's a viewpoint of the truth. It's an experience. The truth is in there somewhere, but it's never fully defined by your perspective, Truth is never fully defined by your experience. And we need to understand that. And as as Christians, it's important for us to understand that. I trust and desire that everything I believe about God, about the, the gospel, the Bible, and the teachings of Christianity are true. I want everything that I believe and everything that I speak to be true and not false. And I want my perspective to be right, uh, exactly the way God intends for us to receive His Word, and uh, all of the theology that I believe, and all the doctrine that I believe that I speak, I want it to be true, right? And I believe that it is. I believe, but but it would be utterly egocentric for me to claim that I hold a corner on truth when I come into disagreement with someone who's obviously much smarter than I am about these things. And I think the best way for us to to be more and more certain that you are putting faith in the truth, the best way for you to be certain about that is for you to look outside of yourself for for truth. We can't create truth. I think a lot of times, even in the church, in Christianity, we hold on to things that we believe are true, theologically, doctrinally. That are really our experiences that we had growing up. Maybe there are traditions that we held growing up. Maybe they are, are, are you know, uh, they are legacies that people have passed on to us. And because they mean so much to us, it's what, I, you know, it's what I've always done. It, therefore, it feels like truth. But but the reality is there could be a lot of different perspectives even even inside of this thing that we call Christianity. And so the best way to be sure that you're believing and walking in truth is to always go to the source of truth, the one whose life proved that he is the source of truth, and that is Jesus Christ. And so what does John say about Jesus? John, who was an eyewitness, walked with Jesus, was hand-selected by Jesus, wrote to us a gospel, uh, basically a, a, an entire life uh, biography uh, of, of, of what he saw and experienced when he was with Christ, and then later in his life, he writes uh, the, the last of the letters that were given to the church for us to put into our New Testament here, that, that were put into our New Testament for us to understand what what the church is to continue to do as we live as Christians, what does John, an eyewitness of Jesus, claim Jesus to be? He says, Jesus I can paraphrase here. I don't, it's not, I'm not reading anything, but basically John says Jesus is the creator God who made everything. He made everything physically and spiritually as part of the triunity of God, the father, the son, the Holy spirit. Jesus is the son. He's the very people that he created then rebelled against him and they sinned. And so he pursued us by coming into this world, being born of a virgin. He came in the flesh. He was actually here. They actually saw him and heard him. And then he died on a cross and then he resurrected on the third day. And he said, I am the way, the truth and the life. And unless you believe in me, you will die in your sins. And now Jesus today in his resurrection is living and ruling at the right hand of God, the father. And he promises that in that ruling and in that reigning, he will return for us one day. That is the clarity of Christ in which we rest. That is the litmus test to examine if what someone is proclaiming is true or not. That's what John says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. The reality is, if what you believe isn't true, it can't hold you firmly. If what you believe isn't true, it can't give you rest and peace, no matter how genuinely you're believing in it you just won't have rest and peace you won't have joy you won't have life abundant and so we need to really see how important it is that the foundation upon which we want to rest our souls be true and truth so discovering truth finding truth is vitally important for all of us and then what i really appreciate about first john chapter 4 is when you get down to verse 7 that we read. I, I, well, I, I, it's hard for me to say that I read that earlier. I was really choppy. I apologize for that reading, by the way. Hopefully, you were able to, to, to get through that. When you get to verse 7, John wastes no time, really. After discussing truth, he transitions, doesn't he? he go, it's like he goes directly from truth, and he dives immediately into this idea of love, and, and, and I appreciate that. I really appreciate that right after truth, he goes directly to love, and here's why. Because love is how you know that someone is living in the truth of Jesus. Love is how you know that someone is really living in the truth of the gospel. Loving others with the love of Christ. And the way John explains it in verse 12, he says it like this, no one has seen God. So no one has ever seen God, but, but you, in knowing Him, you get to, de- you get to demonstrate God in a very tangible way in this world by how you love others so in essence john is saying look no one has seen god like no one is seeing him physically now and here and no one has ever seen god the father but but those who who rest and and put faith in christ you get to live out the love of god and thus people get to see god through you and let me just tie this together because i talked a little bit about this last week and, and but i didn't make a heavy emphasis of it the reason i think it's important for John to immediately, after discussing truth, to dive right into love, so he talks about truth and he goes to love, is because truth isn't an end in itself. Truth isn't an end in itself. Are we still good? I thought, okay, I thought you, <laughs> I thought you are like, I gotta tell you something. What do I mean by that? What do I mean by truth isn't an end to itself? So, God wants us to know truth. So then in knowing truth, it means that we can know and experience Him in, 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 in our lives today. So if you remember in 1 John chapter 3 we said this when we talked about the commandments of God, because you know, I said, you know, God says, okay, here are my commandments. And I said, okay, are you ready for this long list? Right, As if we were getting ready to, to, to give you a long list of commandments today under the New Testament Christianity, under the new covenant. And I said, get ready for them. And Here's what John says the list is. Know God, love others know God, love others. And that's our mission every day. Know the truth about who God is. And then when you know the truth, that's going to be manifest. It's going to be lived out through you in the way you love others. And that's really what God wants us to do. Our pursuit is in knowing him, and as we come to know him, God transforms our lives because he wins our heart and he changes our lives. And when God changes our lives, he changes the way we see this world. He changes the way you look at other people who are different than you, that believe differently than you, because you now have the heart of the Father to look at this world in the way that God looks at this world. And what does God love? God loves people. Because he created people in his image and he pursues people with his life in coming to this world and giving his life on the cross and raising again to conquer death and sin so that people through faith can be with him forever and have relationship with him. And so he takes this idea of truth and he brings it to love and he solidifies it in the commandment that he tells us in 1 John three twenty three to know God and to love others. The declaration of truth, the fact that you have the truth, that you believe the truth, that's not an end in itself, but it's for a purpose. The purpose that you know the truth is for you to know God and love others with that truth. The intentions of truth are to reflect the beauty of God, which means I don't worship truth. I worship Jesus. I worship in truth. Jesus says that in John 4, when he met the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, he told her that anyone who worships must worship in spirit and in truth. So we certainly worship in truth, but we don't worship truth in itself. Rather, we worship Jesus. So that's the importance of understanding truth. So then in talking about love, I want to say this, because when we talk about love, and, and John tells us that God is love, right? You hear that in the words that we read today. God is love. I think it's necessary to point out an important distinction here. It's an often used phrase in Christian circles to say God is love, right? God is love. You might even see it spray painted on walls in graffiti. You might see it held up at football games when they're allowed to have fans there. God is love. God is love. Well, what does that mean? A lot of people don't, I think, know the truth of what that means. And I think it gets distorted and twisted. Because in our culture today, we often read the phrase, God is love. And we make the mistake of switching those words. We actually reverse those words. And in doing so, we cause a reversal of their roles. And we assume this phrase, love is God. Love is God. And a lot of people will look at that phrase, love is God, and they hear me say that, and they're like, well, what's the big deal? What's, I mean, what's the danger in that? There is danger in that. There's great danger in that perspective, because here's what you're doing when you, when you say that love is God equals God is love. Those are not the same phrases. It's to say love is God is to elevate love above God. And it's to say that it doesn't really matter what you believe about God, that when you see something that you determine to be loving in this world, then that is God. So as long as it looks like love, then it's God. Whatever God you're talking about, he's love. And so if it's love, then, it's, then, then that's the most important thing, right? Love then becomes more important than God. Love then defines God. And that's backwards. According to scripture, that's backwards. Because the scripture says God is love which means God defines love. Love flows from God and is the reason that we experience love at all, because, because of God. God is, God is love, and love is about giving itself away because God's nature is loving. That is who he is. We learn in scripture that God is love. Jesus says, I am the way. He is the truth. God is truth. God is life. We learn that God is good, but we turn all those things backwards, and we often tend to mis- we, we misunderstand who God is because we take our definition of those things, our definition of love, our definition of good, and we assume them onto God. We, we put them onto God and say, well, as long as it looks good to me, then it must be God. And the Bible doesn't say that, that our good is God. The Bible says that God is good. Therefore, God defines good. God is love. Therefore, God defines love. And in what way did God show us love in the ultimate fashion? He comes in the flesh in Jesus. He sends Jesus. So to say that God is love, it means that we understand that love did not exist before God, but love exists because of God and the same is true for truth truth and love both can be said about, can be, can be discussed in the same way in the way that we should yearn for truth, we should also yearn for love and to be loving and to demonstrate truth in this world through the way we love others. But we have to understand that truth also is not an end to itself. Truth exists because of Him. And so in desiring both love and truth, we should see that the ultimate end in all of that is God. God is the end. Truth isn't an end, and love isn't an end. But God is the end of those things. We must begin with God and a true understanding of who God is. And when we, when we pursue truth and we seek to love and be loved, we are ultimately pursuing, what we, what we are ultimately pursuing is the one through whom all of those things flow. The one through whom truth flows. The one through whom love flows, which is God. And so when you come to 1 John 4, where we are today in this section of Scripture, verse 13, what John is building on in this section is he's taking those ideas of truth and love that he has described and he's going to bring it to the peak, its ultimate point, its highest place to show us how those things flow from the identity of who God is. And he really wants to confidently shape you in God. He wants to put confidence in you that you know that who you are following is true. And you know that because of the love that you experience in your life and the love that you give to others. We, we need confidence. John is saying, my goal here is to give you confidence, right? I want your confidence to grow in your understanding and your desire to know God and to want to know God. A.W. Tozer has written some incredible books, but one of the, perhaps one of the greatest classics that he wrote is called Knowledge of the Holy, and in that book, he makes a very powerful statement in the very first chapter of this book, Knowledge of the Holy, and he says this, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The reason this is so important to consider is because what you believe will determine how you behave. We've talked about that through this entire series. What you believe will determine how you behave. And so what you think about God is crucial to your existence every single day in your interactions with people, your social life, your intellectual life, your physical life, your online life. What comes to your mind when you think about him is the singular most important thing about us. And so that question then of who is God is paramount in understanding how this love and truth all fit together. And that's what John is expressing throughout this portion of scripture for us. How we view God will determine how we live. And so what John does in this section of scripture is he starts to explain to us in this picture, once again, of who is God. And it's kind of where he began his, this letter, but now we're able to see it ultimately, once again, who is God? And I want us to know that, that this isn't an exhaustive discussion I mean, there's not there's it's not real comprehensive. This is I mean, this is pretty actually kind of simple. And one thing I really appreciate about scripture is that the way scripture is written is that's sort of the way the authors that's what they do. I mean, they see an issue that they're dealing with in the church, and they're like they write specifically to that issue, right? As they're as they're inspired by God to write, they write based on a on a need to know basis, really. I mean, and so we don't always get the full picture of everything theologically and so we have to kind of piece it all together based on the whole totality of scripture and 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 so what i mean is in life sometimes you know you have times moments in your life where you're hungrier to learn certain things at certain times than you are other things like um if it's important to me at the moment, then I want to know it, right? I mean, that's why you look things up on Google. If you've got to, you know, if you need to know how to change your spark plugs, then then you don't know how to do that, you never done that before, then you then that becomes an important thing for you to research. And so you look it up and you figure out how to do it and you follow the instructions. If 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 you don't if you're just like out for a walk in nature, you don't you're not thinking about changing spark plugs. You're thinking about other things. And so we get hungry to learn at certain times when we when we need things. And so as the writers of scripture start to demonstrate God throughout these texts that we read, they do so in light of a particular need they're facing. And so in 1 John 4, it's in light of this idea of he wants the people of God, the church, them at that time Particularly, but it extends to us today to be confident before God and in knowing him. and when some of us think about God, there may not be as the same kind of confidence that John is thinking that we need here. Maybe when you think about God you see God in different ways than what God really is, who God really is. Some of us think about God and we see him as a punisher, right? He's only there when I mess up. I only feel him when I mess up. I feel really bad. And so I need to confess because I really messed up. Maybe some of us, when we think about God, we do so from a distance because we just we don't, we see him as absent. Or maybe sometimes we don't think he's as involved really in, in our lives because we, we don't really spend much time with him at all. But one of the words that shows up in this text that I want to focus on today as we think about God is this idea of God being our Father. Because that thought, that statement about God, it will always cast a particular image for us in the identity of who God is, right? It says in verse 14, And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world, right? And then he talks about abiding in him, so, so so really resting in him. And so this identity of God as Father is something that is that is that is really, really strong in scripture. Paul makes a really strong statement about God that I think is, 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 is a really good summary of, of this section that we're looking at in 1 John 4. When Paul says in Romans 8:15, For we did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption. As sons and daughters, that spirit is the one that we cry out. From that spirit, we cry out from the depths of our heart, Abba, he says, Father. And the word that is used there in the Greek language, Abba, literally means Daddy, Dad. So this is a a word that is used to describe a really close, intimate relationship between a father and a child, a special bond of connectedness. It's a beautiful description of how God wants to meet you where you are and just take care of you in that moment. He wants to be your father. And this idea of being a father means that God wants to be personal to you. He doesn't want to be far off and distant. He doesn't want to be just a punisher. He wants to know you in a really personal way to to the point that this very word was used intentionally to express that, dad, dad. Dad that's a really really close relational word and I think it's beautiful uh, it's a beautiful word for God to describe himself as as dad because because uh it 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 really shows the heart of what he desires, but I also think it it gets it gets really distorted because Satan knows this word also he knows that this word is used and i think what he wants to do is he wants to crush the idea of what a father is by having you compare earthly fathers to to our heavenly father and say well if that's what god is like then i'm not sure i want that for those of you that may have not had good earthly father experiences because when some of you think about that word father i understand you may have fatherly wo- uh, wounds some of you maybe have, you know there are this this generation of young adults today has some some people have even coined the phrase um as this generation being like a fatherless generation, that, that many have had dads that were either absent or maybe uninvolved, even though they may have lived in your home, or maybe they were cowardly and didn't want to lead, um, or maybe they led so strongly that you didn't really see love through it. Maybe when some of you think of this word father, rather than run toward the word father, it pushes you further away. And that's the way Satan will use this word If I, as I'm speaking it today to those of you who have had those bad experiences. But I'm asking you to hold on here for a second. Even though those negative emotions may be stirred up, maybe you're completely without a dad. Or maybe as a father. Maybe you are a father. Maybe you feel like you failed. And so it's like, oh man, you know, you're feeling it personally about yourself. But here's the truth. Here's the, this is the truth. There is a truth that's outside of your experience, okay? There is a truth about what a father is intended to be that is outside. It exists outside of your experience. Your perspective and your experience is true for you. But there is a truth about what God desires a father to look like. And here's the truth, regardless of what you've experienced from an earthly father or as a father yourself, good or bad, we all have the example of what true love is. We all do. And that example comes from our heavenly father. He is the picture of how a father should live and how a father should love his children unconditionally. So maybe the issue for you, uh, from maybe for the issue for most of you is, is that is not that you've been a rotten son or daughter that you, you know, that you want to learn to love your father. Um, maybe the issue is, 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 is is that you've had a, re- a a good relationship and that's fantastic, but even in your good relationship, there is still a truth that exists outside of your experience. There is still truth of who, what, 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 what God the Father looks like, and that's what we need to see here and understand that that's who God is. God is a good father, which means God never fails. He never fails you as a father. When it comes to be a parent, whether you're a mother or a father, look, we know this. We fail, right? We know we do. And in this section of scripture, we're all called upon to love people. But as we go out to love people, we're inevitably going to fail at this. At some point, we're going to fail. At some point, we always fall short. But we have this beautiful position of then directing people's attention away from our failure to the love of the Father who never fails. Because God is good. God is true. God is holy, which means he is other, which means he's completely different than me. He's completely different from us because we fail. And so we read this section of scripture, particularly 1 John 13 and 14, and I want to read this again, but I want us to read it from that perspective of God in his position of a father who is really reaching out to you. This is what John says, by this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us his spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and He in God. So we have come to know and believe that the love of God, the love that God has for us, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in Him, and God abides in Him. So remember, John started this section with the idea of being confident in who God is and in who you are in Him, in the truth. We see it again in verse 17. He's going to bring this up. He's going to again talk about your confidence before God, being confident before God that this Father is pursuing you. He has pursued you. He started out this whole line of thinking back in chapter 2, verse 28, where he says, little children, abide in Him so that when He appears, we may have confidence." and not shrink back in shame at his coming. So he starts at verse 28 in chapter two, have confidence. And now in verse 17 of chapter four, this idea of confidence is brought back up again. And in between all of this, Between those two chapters, we see that he communicates to us in a way of that, the way of having confidence before God. And he says it right at the beginning of chapter three, where he says, see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. So what kind of love the father has given to us? See it. That's where your confidence comes from. Confidence comes through wrapping ourselves in the love that He has demonstrated for us. This idea of God as Father is attached to that demonstration. So when we come back to verse 13 and 14, He's explaining to us again in in chapter 4 this identity of God. This, how important it is to understand the identity of God, the truth of who God is, this idea of bringing his spirit and this idea of being a father, sending a son to rescue you, not abandoning you, but rescuing you so that you can put your trust and your faith in him. And then doing so, he abides with you and you abide in him. You live in him. So if I just break down this whole section of scripture for us, if we just look at it, I think he's saying this, the spirit abiding with us, right? He's talking about the Holy Spirit. So the third member of the the triune God, God the Father sent God the Son. And now as we put our faith in him, God the Holy Spirit lives in you. He works in you in your favor for your benefit that you would walk confidently before God by seeing that he has pursued you. So his spirit is making him known in your life. And then he says, we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And I love this phrase. We have seen and testified that the Father sent the Son. You think the way 1 John began in chapter 1, he said, from the beginning, which he has seen, which he has heard, he's declaring this to you. From the very beginning, I've seen this. John said, I've seen him. I I, I was there from the beginning, and I'm declaring to you that this is true. He uses this apostolic story of him just telling the story himself like he's a grandpa, you know, in his 90s as he's telling this story, as he's writing this letter to us. And he starts on the basis of having been an eyewitness of Jesus and what Jesus did in this world. And he walked with Jesus and he heard from Jesus and he touched Jesus. And and that's how he begins 1 John 1. And then in chapter 4, he he sort of, evens the playing field for us. He says, that was what I experienced when Jesus was here in person. But rather than than pretending to be some super elite person in Christ because I walked with him while he was living here on earth, he now takes this word, we, and he invites you and I to participate in the same exact way. And how do we get to participate with Jesus in the same way that John did? Yeah, we don't see him and touch him and hear from him directly as a person, but in the same way, by his spirit you now abide in him and you live in him so what john is saying is we have all experienced this in him we have all we have seen what god has done by jesus on the cross in a very personal way this isn't something that john is saying is distant from us that john is saying you know as someone who is different you know he you know he's saying it right with us he's saying look you're with me in this because of his spirit that whatever John possesses in his relationship with God, it can also be true with all of those who follow after John and Jesus. It can be true of us today, in this year, in this time. And so in verse 15, he says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God, so that we have come to know him, to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So John is saying, look, we've come to know him we've come to know him not just intellectual knowledge but in a very personal way you've come to know him and the way that this happens is that is the confession of the purification of your soul right you are you have come to him and confessed your sins to him and he is faithful and just and he forgives you and now he lives in you and you and him and out of anything and everything that i could belong to in this world as a as a being that looks for my identity in in worship, you can worship a lot of things. As a being that tries to find, you know, that tries to find my worth and value in this world and a lot of different things, to place your identity in Jesus is the only lasting, firm foundation in which you can place your identity. Because the Father has extended His love by sending Christ to rescue you, and so He's saying this. Um, this beauty of abiding in in him has to do with this. And this is is sort of where I'm going to close here today in, in saying this. I love the fact that throughout the scripture, we see this word abide. Jesus talks about abiding in him. And John now uses this word abiding in him. And God abides in you. God lives in you. The beauty of abiding has to do with the shaping of your heart. That's, that's kind of the way I love the word abide. It's, it's a perfect word for this thought because really it just means this, that this is where you're going to settle in for a while. That's what abiding means. You found a home. You're going to camp there. You're going to live there. You're going to plant roots there. You're saying, this is who I'm going to be. I mean, when you live somewhere, right, that place that you live in kind of starts to shape you, doesn't it? I mean, it, A lot of country songs are written about the place where they grew up, the place where they live, right? Their hometown and how it shapes them. That's what abiding does. So abide in Him and what happens to you? It's the shaping of your heart is what happens to you. The transformation of your life, the demonstration of God's love as you know Him, that you may be confident in Him because of His love for you. He says, "By this." We know that his love is perfected in us. That's another really cool word. His love is perfected in us. This is verse 17, I believe. So that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. That word perfected means completed. You're completed in his love. As you abide, as you sit with him, as you know him, as you see the love that's been demonstrated before you, this love is perfected in your life. You, you You are growing more and more to be like Jesus. And you can have confidence in that. And that's, that's the word that, that I want to just really stick with you today, the word confidence. Confidence. Conf- I mean, you know, when we talk about confidence in the world today, many use it to talk about worldly pursuits, right? I mean, um, and people will tell you that confidence is something that comes from within, that it comes, you know, and you will gain more confidence as you have more experience and as you're more prepared, you know, more life experience or more experience if you're playing a game or, you know, playing an instrument or whatever it is, you'll be more prepared and therefore you'll be more confident. And that is true when we're talking about worldly pursuits. But what is John talking about when he says that he wants you to be confident? Where does your confidence come from? Does it come from within? John says that you can have confidence. You can have confidence today because as he is also are we in this world what in the world does that mean right here's what he's saying you're not awesome just because you're awesome you're not you're not really you're not confident because of of, of something that you have done or that you do you're awesome because god is awesome that's what he's saying he's saying that He's the one that is that has made you brilliantly brilliantly. He knows you like like no other. He's the one that created you for his purpose. And so understanding him and the truth of who he is then provides you the foundation for understanding who you are. And that's that that's what gives you confidence. The danger in finding your self-worth, your identity in in who you are in your inside yourself is what happens when you're not really that great? What happens when you fail? Where is your worth? This verse, this word from John helps us to see that our confidence isn't based on us. It's not based on you, but our confidence is based in God. I don't need to be a great person in order to have confidence. Here's what I need. I need a great God. That's what John is saying. When we talk about God's love, the reason that you can be confident in his love is not because of you. It's not because you're great. It's because God is great. And the greatness of who he is, the goodness of God, like we sang about, is what gives you confidence. He wants to do a really good and great thing in you. But it's got to come from him. That type of love that comes from the Father and knowing that kind of love is what builds our confidence more and more. So I want to, I want to wrap this up. There was a few verses down in in, in 1 John four, but I want to I want to bring this to a close by saying this. There's a really important verse down in verse 19 that is is a famous verse. Whenever, uh, whenever you're reading 1 John um, four, you recognize this verse right away because it's quoted a lot, and it says this: "We love him because he first loved us. We love." him because he first loved. We love because he first loved us. The only way that you even know how to love is because God first loved you, because God is love. And so we run to God in love because we see the way that he has run to us with grace. God loves us. And so when you come to the very end of this section of scripture, there's a call in verses 20 and 21 to love each other. And when I think about the way that God calls us to love, and that's, that's what we've said is the theme of this entire series that we've been studying here, and we're going to wrap this one up next Sunday, or maybe a Sunday after that, is the only way that we're going to be able to love the way God calls us to love, the only way that we're capable of loving the way God calls us to love is by resting ourselves in the love of God that he has pursued us with, because that is what gives us the strength to move forward. The only way that you're going to be able to go out from here and love the way God desires for you to love is you have to rest in the love of God yourself. At the end of sermons, sometimes it's a good idea to have a call to action, right? To I grew up in a church that always had an invitation, and it was a—it was basically an invitation for people to give their lives to Christ, and um, and there would be a song, and then people, someone, people might come forward and say, "I want to give my life to Christ," or "I need—I got something I need to to recommit to Him." And often at the end of the sermons, there's this, this sort of a call to action. It's a—we call it a worship response. We'll we'll respond with a song. And it gives you an opportunity to reflect personally about what God wants you to do after hearing His Word, after reading His Word, after studying His Word. There's always some sort of action step, right? And so here's the action step for today, right? Sometimes I'll give you a, a helpful action step. Here's something that you can do. But here's the action step that's related to what we've studied and looked at today. I don't know that this section of Scripture really needs an action step. But rather, I think what it might need is this, just for us to rest, rest in God. Because that's what John is saying, abide, abide. How can I be confident to do what God calls me to do unless I rest in him, unless I truly abide in him? how can I be confident to do anything for God unless I am aware of his love for me? And if you're not aware of his love for you, then you need to pause for a moment, right? Pause and invite his presence into your life. Allow him to fill your soul and that hunger that you have for truth and love, because neither one of those things are an end to themselves. You need to recognize that the whole reason for pursuing truth and the whole reason for pursuing love is that you would see God himself because he is both of those things. And so when you think from chapter two, all the way back from chapter 228, he wants us to have confidence to the end of this chapter four that we looked at today. What John wants you to know and what he wants you to take away from this is confidence. He wants you to be confident, a confidence that has everything to do with nothing inside of you, but with the identity of God and our understanding of who God is and resting in the security of God. Because Paul says, as he says, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery, but you have received a spirit as sons and daughters. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, Daddy. Let's pray, and then let's respond to God's word today. God, um, we thank you for your word. We thank you for sustaining us today. I pray that if there's anyone who is tuned in with us today, Lord, that does not know the truth about who you are, I pray that that truth would sink in today, that you would meet them very personally in a very real way. And that they would know the truth of who you are because they would experience your love, maybe perhaps for the first time as we have have been together in, in worship, as we've been together here online, as we continue to sing here, as we respond, maybe there will be something in this next song that we sing that really reaches out and draws them close to you to see that you are pursuing them in love. And the purpose for that is that they might go out and share it with others.